been a while. Does anybody remember where we left off? Eight. I have eight. Do I hear nine? Do I have twelve? We left off with chapter twelve. Lord willing, we'll pick up with chapter 13 next week. I actually want you to turn back to chapter 6 this morning. A lot has happened in the world, in our country, since the last time we were speaking from the book of Revelation. I would be remiss, I believe, in not tying in some of these events with God's Word. And that's what I want to do this morning take an introductory message and see if we can get a better perspective on what's going on from God's point of view. We've had a lot of man's point of view. If you uh, have a job, as I do, many of you know I work out at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, you might have received a flyer like this. I received many uh, over a period of the last couple of months in my mailbox. This is a special workshop that uh, was put on by the laboratory. It's called Stress Management Workshop. The title of it is How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Interesting, the implication in the last phrase, and start living. The implication, of course, is that people have stopped living. And in a sense, many have. Many people have been devastated. The key words... No one uh, bothered hiding it. They were uh, willing to freely admit there was anxiety, fear, stress. In many cases, you could say that people have been paralyzed. Their lives have come to a standstill. Some people are beginning to recover. Many have not. And when I see something like this, my heart goes out to the teacher of a seminar like that. Because without Jesus Christ, without the Word of God as a foundation, I don't know what in the world you can tell someone to give them courage and hope. The world, not just this country, has experienced a paroxysm of fear and concern. Even in the day of prayer and the big uh, ceremony that took place in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., it was interesting to me. I don't know if you noticed but in the prayers and the services there and other places around the world. The attitude toward God seemed to be um, to remind him what had happened and uh, somehow to appeal to him to get us out of this mess. The implication being, where were you? Where was God? Really, that's the thing that's been missing in what I've seen and heard even among Christians. It's as if God was out to lunch. I've also seen among believers um, a preoccupation with Satan, with the devil, with terrorists, seeing terrorists in their soup, and a danger of responding like the world, almost implying, where is God? Where was God? 
Well, the world can have no explanation. It has no basis for it. But we do. And so I'd like to look at the Bible this morning, in particular review some of the things we've been talking about in Revelation, and show um, where God fits into all of this. And more importantly, how should we respond as believers? As I have personally observed and gone through the same experience as you, I have noticed that, in a way, among many other things, when God does something, by the way, He accomplishes many things. When we do something, we do one thing. You know, we, we typically have one purpose. God's not like that. It says in Ephesians, His manifold wisdom. Manifold, many, many ways. God accomplishes hundreds of things with one action. But the thing that has really stood out to me now is the way in which God has used these events to again inch the world toward the end times. Have you noticed that? He's been doing this all along. Now, now I, w- I want you to understand, God is not the author of evil. He tempts no one, and he himself cannot be tempted to sin. We provide the evil, the sin, you see. We supply the raw material. And God suppresses most of it. But he permits some to take place. And he has his purposes, and they will be accomplished. And, of course, he is moving the earth toward a culminating point in in the history of this planet, which will be that great day when the Lord Jesus Christ will come visibly, as he said he would, and every eye will see him, and he will take his rightful place on his throne. That's God's direction. But we know along the way that other things are going to be happening on this earth, including great judgments that will come upon the earth from God himself. There will be uh, increased lawlessness on the earth. There will be a one world society and so on. And these are the things that have stood out to me. I'm going to list four things that remarkably have, in a sense, inched us closer to the tribulation. And I wonder how much closer we can get before the Lord Jesus Christ calls his church to himself and the last seven years of planet Earth begin to tick off. You know, from what we saw in many passages, beginning here in Revelation 6, that there is going to be an increase in lawlessness, right? We talked about that. Second Thessalonians 2 makes that very clear. God talks about lawlessness in the form of a mystery there. It's very interesting. He calls it the mystery of lawlessness. Now remember... For those of you not familiar, the word mystery in the Bible doesn't mean a Sherlock Holmes or a Poirot story. It's not a whodunit. The word mystery means something that has been re- uh, hidden, but which is now revealed. And we can understand it when it's applied to the church. The church was a hidden thing in the Old Testament. All you see there is the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. But God then has brought forth this new thing, this new nation, so to speak, of people who know Jesus Christ and we are now a whole nation that was hidden but have now been revealed. 
the uh, incarnation, the fact of God becoming a man, what a wonderful thing, is referred to as a mystery. You may wonder, why does God call lawlessness a mystery? That's not hidden. We see it all around us. What he means is, it is going to be revealed in a way we never had any idea it could be real, be revealed before. We will see the heart of man as it has never been seen before. What is the stock phrase that people get away with even today? Man is basically what? Good. Isn't that right? You ask anybody on the street, that's, anybody will tell you that. We're basically good. Now that's a direct contradiction to the Bible. I give you one verse. Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwelleth what? No good thing. Not only not basically good, there dwells no good thing. And God is going to show that, not only to the rest of mankind, but to all creation, what the human heart is really like and what we're capable of. And it struck me, after uh, the events of September 11th, when people began to press on the FBI and the CIA, and they said, why didn't you know about that? Why wasn't it prevented? You know what the response was? We never thought of it. Isn't that interesting? They honestly had to say. It had never crossed our minds that someone would do something like that. But it's been done. You see, God, so to speak, pushed back the envelope of sin. Just one more uh, mark on the scale, so to speak. Now you say, well, that's not going to happen until the tri tribulation. Well, no. Of all the mysteries in the Bible, that's the only one where it says, and the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Isn't that interesting? And we can see that God is uh, kind of working up to the day when finally he will remove all restraint and turn people loose and they'll do the first thing that comes into their mind. And when we preach on Revelation 6, I uh, stressed verses 3 and 4, the second seal. Remember the first seal was the, uh, the man uh, on the white horse. Or it says he who sat on the white horse. We believe it's the man. And it must, I believe it's the Antichrist. He had a bow and he conquered. Not all of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are terrible things, so to speak. That is, comets falling from heaven and earthquakes and fire. And the first one appears to be the Antichrist being revealed and conquering. We know he's going to control, ultimately, the whole world. But the second seal is often misunderstood because it says this, Verse 4, And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And commentators read that, and they're so used to thinking, oh yeah, wars. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars. This is war. No, he doesn't say war. He very specifically says he's taking peace from the earth, that people should kill one another. This is anarchy in its worst form. And this fits in with Second Thessalonians perfectly. Chapter 2 talks about the revelation of this one, the Antichrist, and the increase in lawlessness. You see, these two things happen right at the very beginning. And so this picture many Christians have of the tribulation, the seven years and the last half of the great tribulation, is sort of being 
business as usual, typically. You know, you have these movies made where people are, you know, just like right now, ordinary. Oh, no, there was a big cataclysm yesterday. I read about it in the newspaper or something, you know. Nothing could be further from the truth. We saw what a turmoil this country was thrown into by an insignificant event compared to what's going to be happening in the tribulation. Can you imagine what it's going to be like on planet Earth during these days? Maybe, if nothing else, we have a fresher sense of what it's going to be like to live during that time. You talk about fear and anxiety, we're going to look at that in a minute. This is not war, this is what we've been saying. It's the revealing of the heart of man and God stopping his previous ministry of holding back evil. And letting people do whatever they want to do. It's just like before the flood. You have that interesting verse right before the flood, back in Genesis, where God says, My spirit will not strive forever within the, with the hearts of man. Isn't that interesting? Just like this. And then right after that, it says, Then he looked on the earth, and the, and the thoughts of men was only evil continually. And we, we took a step closer, you see, I believe, these last couple of months in seeing that. Coupled with that, I was talking uh, with uh, a Brother Don a few weeks ago about this. It was uncanny. The second major thing is the willingness of people to be monitored. It blew me away. I couldn't understand... How people, we're going to read about it next week, Lord willing, in chapter 13 of, of Revelation. How people would so willingly submit to receiving the mark of the beast. And yet just within a, a few days, there was a CNN poll that, that uh, asked people across the United States, would you be willing to give up privacy in exchange for greater safety? Overwhelming majority said, yes, absolutely. They interview people going on airplanes now, and they ask them, you know, does it bother you now that it takes three hours instead of a half hour, an hour to get on a plane? They said, absolutely not. There are a few, but by and large, a great majority say, absolutely. If it means being safer, I'll do anything. Isn't it interesting? Many of you know about the digital angel. How many have heard about the digital angel? It was a product that was announced actually last year. Uh, it was developed by Applied Digital Solutions, a company in Palm Beach, Florida. It's become uh, so popular that they've actually had a spin-off company that is now named Digital Angel Incorporated. They've got a website. Go visit it. It's a marvelous invention. It's a miniature sensor device. Smaller than a grain of rice and equipped with a tiny antenna. Right now, the primary application will be uh, to capture and wirelessly transmit a person's vital body function data, such as temperature, pulse, and so on, via the Internet, so that someone at the other end can bring up a website and, and actually observe the condition of a person remotely because of the sensor that has been implanted in them surgically. Now, now that we've got the sensor in us, 
It can transmit all sorts of things. And um, the first application they see of this, in fact, you can get one for Christmas for your friends if you want. Um, I went to the website yesterday. In its first version, it's available right now either as a wristwatch or a little beeper. The, because the other aspect of it, which is quite useful, is that it will transmit minute by minute using GPS your location. Isn't that good? And, and, they, and they talk about that as a positive thing. The tiny device is expected to be bonded closely to the body or implanted just under the skin. Among the list of applications, certainly for the elderly who may be shut in, you know, a, a local doctor, a hospital, or relatives could monitor their, their condition moment by moment and the location. It says, and providing, it is possible to provide a tamper-proof means of identification for enhanced commerce security. Yeah, I hear a few grunts when I said that. You know what the mark is for, don't you? We'll see it, of course, next week. The mark is, is, it says plainly that no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark. Now, the interesting thing is that is, uh, when he describes it, I have to restrain myself because I'm going to talk more about it next week, but it says God is, is so careful when he, when he gives his word. He says people are going to have the option of either having to put it on their right hand or on their forehead. Isn't that interesting? Which drives home the point. It's very real. You know, he doesn't just say they're going to have this mark. He's, he goes into such detail. He says either the right hand or the forehead. What a perfect place for this thing, huh? Now, they've already mentioned, they haven't said specifically how, but it could be used in crime detection. Let me just paint a scenario for you. After what's happened, you ain't seen nothing yet. When God removes a restrainer and lawlessness breaks out and people are killing one another all over the world, people are going to be paranoid and they'll do anything to achieve security. And along, here, here's a great answer. Everyone will be required to have one of these things put in you. And they can arrange it so that they can't be tampered with. In other words, if you mess with it, it'll go inactive and they'll know it. There are only six billion people in the world. In terms of uh, a disk space, that's six gigabytes. That's nothing now for a disk drive. For everyone, to have, for everyone to have one of these and have it transmit your location, say, every five minutes, we have plenty of bandwidth to accommodate that with several satellites and to store in a central bank. Now imagine Tom, Jason, Daryl. There was a robbery committed last night at such and such an address in Hayward. It would be trivial to go into the database and find out via the transmissions exactly who it was. No sweat. You know the classic line in... Uh, Perry Mason in TV Mysteries, where were you on the night of? Don't need to ask. I'll tell you, it's a lot closer to reality now than it was a couple of months ago. And when, things, uh, and when all hell begins to break loose on planet Earth, people are going to be clamoring for it. No wonder people are willing to do it. And it'll be compulsory, and people, they'll be, most people will be more than happy to do it because of the safety that will come with it, you see. Isn't that interesting? We see that now. 
and you'd like to beat the system, but it's going to be arranged so that we're already moving this way now anyway because of all the internet fraud. There are several large uh, corporations that are worldwide that want to enable you to do e-transactions through a central, one central point. You no longer have a visa number. It's a new number every time you do a transaction that's secure. So the, there comes the buying and selling part. With this little gimmick, you see it's foolproof. You, you come, you, you are you because you have your little uh, mark, your little thingy, you know. Nobody can fool anybody. It's you doing the transaction. In fact, you cannot buy and sell, it says in the Bible, without having this mark of the beast. So, sooner or later, you're going to have to buy or sell something. If all commerce is reduced to this and money is done away with, then uh, it's going to be compulsory. Of course, the problem is, as you know, and we're going to look at it, it's linked with worship of the beast. And you may, and you may say, I don't see how that's going to happen. Well, you'll see when we look at it next week. The digital angel, watch for it on uh, a, mark, a, a supermarket stand near you. It's, it's, it's amazing to me as I've looked back. You, you can look back and you can see how God is edging the world toward those last days. But it's done so slowly sometimes, so imperceptibly. It's just one event at a time that nobody really notices. Let me give you an illustration. If this is the timeline here, it's, it's, and, and right here is the beginning of the tribulation, you know, when we're going to be gone, believers, we're going to be with Jesus. He started way back here, and he's itching the world toward the conditions that will exist at that time. And he just, you know, he kind of, he just, with one event or two, he kind of inches things along. A biggie was back in 1948 when God returned the Jews to the land of Israel. Incredible, wasn't it? It's a miracle. It's incredible. Nobody thinks about it now, you see. It's, it's kind of buried in the past. But you see, God is just setting the stage, putting the props on there. And with these little events, he just keeps inching it along. But you don't notice it very slowly. I'll tell you, I think we're right here. And all it's going to take is that and we're out of here it's done slow enough so the world doesn't notice it but it's happening I know many of you heard me use this uh, illustration before but we've got some new believers in our midst so I'll take some liberty and use it again but uh, I don't know if it's true or not but uh, in the south they say that the way to boil a frog way to cook them is to do it fresh. Start with a frog freshly caught. The problem is you can't have a nice big boiling pot of water on the stove and stick a frog in it because it's hot water, he'll jump out. So theoretically the way to do it is to take the frog and you put him in a nice big huge pot of cold water on the stove. He's happy. You know, he's glad to be back into his environment. Then you turn the heat on. Well, this, if, you, if you're familiar with a big pot of water, it doesn't just heat up, you know, it takes forever imperceptibly, little by little, that water gets warmer and warmer. But from one minute to the next, you really don't notice it until it's too late and the frog is, is boiled, you see. And that's the way it is. 
That's the way, that's the way it's going to happen. As Jesus said, that day will come suddenly to those who dwell on the earth. It's going to catch them by surprise. Well, the third uh, mark of these events to me has been world unity. Every time I think we can't get any closer before the, uh, the church is taken away, something else happens to bring the world even closer together. After these events have taken place, um, we all saw the world rally to unite, to, as, as uh, the, the hue and cry is, to obliterate terrorism. This has been uh, a chant among people for quite a while, one world, and so on. It really became prominent after the Gulf War, if you remember. But never has it been like this. Such cooperation, such oneness, such agreement. One of the first nations to rally to our side was Russia. That blew me away. Pakistan. And if, if you look at the attitude among the leaders, it's, it's a we-can-do-it attitude. That's very important. You know, together we can do it. No mention of God. This is very significant. Because it's just like God's last great act of judgment on the earth. You know what it was? And it's not the flood. It was the Tower of Babel, which was after that. People got together and they spoke one language at that time. And if you read that passage in Genesis, you see this phrase over and over again that the people say to each other, let us do this, let us do that. Let us build us a tower. Let us make ourselves a name. And the point was that together they were going to do this great thing and basically challenge God. And of course, you know the judgment. That's where languages came from. God dispersed them throughout the earth and gave them different languages. It's interesting to me that slowly we have been overcoming that judgment. And now the prominent language on the Internet is English. The one language that's spoken in all airports throughout the world is English. And slowly, uh, the world is being tied together, not only language-wise, but now with events like this. The first thing that happens is, you know, we have a common enemy. Let's unite together. World unity. And the last one is one religion. Another mark of the end times along with the apostasy of the, of the professing church. He says in 2 Thessalonians that the man of sin will not be revealed until the falling away, the word is apostasia, comes first. And every time I think we've seen it, in its greatest extent, in the professing church, something else happens. And that was something that stood out to me, and still does, in the following events. The National Day of Prayer, the... the uh, Celebration, so to speak, at the National Cathedral on uh, September 14th. The three prominent leaders, there was a, a Protestant, he was an Episcopalian deacon from that Episcopalian church. There was a Jewish rabbi and there was uh, a Muslim imam who led in prayer. Now, if you know anything about Islam, one of the most revolting thoughts to a Muslim is the idea that God is a father and Jesus is his son. 
They don't understand what that phrase means. They think of physical sun, you see. And yet here was this Muslim standing and praying right after the deacon had got up and, and called God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you know, nothing is more revolting to a Jew than the cross. It really wasn't mentioned in the whole ceremony except once by Billy Graham. And when he did mention it, he was very careful to say, I'm addressing Christians now. And I'm talking about it. But it was interesting to me to see these three men, leaders of religions, together praying, to, apparently, they believe to the same God. Now, you know as well as I do that the, the true God, the living God, the God of the Bible, is not the same God as the God of Islam, Allah, or the gods, gods of Hinduism, or even the God that uh, Judaism has adopted to whom they, uh, they get to by works. I'm not talking about Christianity now. I'm not talking about a religion. If you know Jesus Christ, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing Jesus Christ, knowing God, having a personal relationship with Him. That is based upon the fact that I am a sinner, deserve God's judgment. I don't deserve one thought from God at all, except His judgment. But in His mercy and His grace, He sent His Son to come and pay for my sin so that I might be forgiven and know Him forever. That is infinitely removed from all other forms of religion on the earth. From Hinduism to Shintoism to Confucianism, Buddhism, Islam, you name it. They all have that one common element. No, I'm okay. If I try hard enough, if I do the right things, I'll be accepted to God. Those are so uh, polar, so different. And it's interesting to me to see how more and more, in particular in the last couple of months, Christian leaders have been almost careful to avoid the cross. Or even mentioning Jesus. We're getting closer and closer to a Christianity without a cross. In fact, a Christianity without Christ. At which point we'll look like everything else. And when I say we, I mean the professing church. And we're right in the end times at that point. Paul said, we preach Christ, and him what? Crucified. He said, the cross is to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. And that's why, quote, Christian leaders are ashamed to talk about it, because they know it's foolishness to people, and they're embarrassed. And so more and more it's getting dropped, it's getting removed. And here again is this, The greatest human spectacle in India, the most amazing and complete exhibition of blind religious zeal and superstition in all heathendom, is the sunrise gathering of Ganges worshippers along the riverbank at Benares. One has heart-sinking doubts of Christian missionaries ever being able to make headway with such a people against such bigoted zealots. 
But as Gautama Buddha once won them from Hinduism to his faith for generations, they can be converted again. Do you know what that's quoted from? That's not from Christian missions in many lands. That's not a straight-talking pamphlet that uh, is handed to prospective missionaries to India. That's from National Geographic, 1907. How far we've come. I can think of just a few months ago when they had an issue about uh, uh, animistic and tribal worship in Africa where they had pictures of people who I believe were actually demon-possessed. Because they said plainly in the article that they, they try to succumb to spirits, they take drugs to enhance that effect, and then they go into a frenzy, slash themselves, do all kinds of things that are even unmentionable. And they have pictures of them when they're in this frenzy. It's demon possession. And the article is not written in any critical way at all. It's like, you know, here is these people's religion. Isn't that interesting? And here are the benefits of it. That, that's, that's like a, a snapshot, you see, of how far we have come as a people. Increased lawlessness, point one. Willingness of people to be monitored is the second. World unity, the third. One religion, the fourth. And this article that I just read brings me to the fifth point <coughs> as we think about our country and how far we've come. And I don't know this. It's a question mark, but it's a possibility. Could it be that God is judging the United States? Now, there have been a few Christian leaders who have spoken out uh, unadvisably, probably uh, uh, too casually. I think Jerry Falwell was one of them. He immediately made some comment, you know, not only that he knew that it was God's judgment, but he gave the reasons for it. That's not a good thing to do. I don't know. I can say this, it's the first time there's ever been an enemy attack on U.S. soil. That's, that's, that's a big thing. And it wasn't a small thing either. That, that should register with us. We know, brothers and sisters, our country is in a spiritual desert. We've been praying about it for years, for decades. I mean, it's been going like this, and in the 1960s it went like this. We are the world leader in humanism, evolutionism, materialism, aren't we? We are. We have been at ease in Zion, to use a phrase that God applied to the nation of Israel, too long. It's interesting that when the phrase, in God we trust, was put on our money, it was assumed that was the God of the Bible. Did you know that's hard to believe, isn't it? And yet in one, one day's events, God sent this country reeling. We still haven't recovered economically, and we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. Only God knows. I don't know. Now, the average American wants, wants to return to normal life, even as believers. And this is commendable. We want to live a peaceable life, don't we? I do. And that's commendable. God says in 1 Timothy... To pray that we might live, pray for those over us, that we might live a peaceable life. He says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Yes. But at the same time, when we pray that, let us be careful. We don't presume that it's going to happen. It may not. I don't know. 
I do know that God judges nations as well as individuals. And if ever there was a nation that's ripe for judgment, I'm sorry to say, it's us. We have turned our back on God. You know, one of the, one of the, uh, probably the most important thing that God would have wanted to come out of these events would have been national repentance. Do you realize that? That's what God is looking for in this country. A return to Him. It's that simple. So far, I haven't seen it. There has been um, spiritual activity. There uh, has been talk of God, but nothing about repentance. And those are two different things. And the world's apart. Turn to Luke chapter 21. There are many phrases here. Now, Jesus is talking to his disciples here about the end times. But there are many phrases here that apply now. And I, and I said I was going to say, how should we respond? Well, this is I'm going to start answering that question. And if you can think about your experience, I experienced it. We all have fear, anxiety, worry. Over the last, particularly the first couple of weeks or so. Can you imagine what it'll be like? Even for the believers on this planet, when it's reeling to and fro like a drunken man. When God will not miss his mark. And there will be devastation that is just incomprehensible to the human mind. Jesus tries to encourage the believers. These words really, ultimately, although they're for our benefit, they're written to encourage the believers at that time. Listen to the description, verse, verse uh, 25. He says, There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations. Wow. We saw many of the things that will be happening in... Uh, Heavenly places, apparently two asteroids hitting the earth on separate uh, occasions. Terrible destruction throughout the earth. Distress of nations, not just distress of individuals, on a national level. With perplexity, we've seen that. Just confusion, you know, people saying, trying to figure out what's going on here, you know, what's happening. Perplexity, per confusion and fear all mixed up, anxiety. He adds this phrase, the sea and the waves roaring. Well, when Jesus says that, we're not talking about going down to, uh, you know, Ocean Beach in San Francisco when there's a storm out at sea and you see the big waves. When Jesus says that and he's talking in the context of the end times, we're talking big time, tidal waves. I mean, the earth, the, the, the sea, uh, unleashed. I can't imagine what sort of uh, tidal wave activity is going to take place when, when the meter he talks about in, uh, I believe it was the, uh, the trumpets, hits. It's going to be inconceivable. With all of this stuff going around, you know, uh, one, one of the things that still haunts people is what's going to happen next. 
That's what it's going to be like. He says, men's hearts failing them from fear. And what? The expectation of those things which are coming. You know? We've had two cataclysms in the last week. What's going to happen next? Now, in the case of God, He's not going to miss. They're going to come. He's already said they're going to happen. They will happen. And nothing is going to stop them. Men's hearts fail in them. Tremendous fear. Worry, anxiety, confusion. Why? For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Remember I talked about that gamma ray burster. What would it be like? And, they, and the scientists have all concluded that there would just be this huge film of darkness that would just roll across the sky in a few seconds. Can you imagine seeing that happen? Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He's been talking about people who don't know him. Now he addresses the believers. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And I can just imagine being a believer who has refused to have the mark of the beast, holding out somewhere, longing for the coming of Jesus Christ, for this stuff to end. Maybe uh, the second meteoroid or asteroid or whatever it is hit, has hit. From the timing, if things get faster and faster, maybe a couple more weeks, possibly. And, and I would, man, I would turn to this passage. I would memorize it. I would hold it dear to my heart. He says, when you see these things happening, look up and lift up your heads. He's at the door. He's almost here. Well, you see, the same counsel is for us. When we see things happening like this, well, yes, God is involved. He's doing things, brothers and sisters. He's not out to lunch. He's accomplishing His purposes. He's on the throne. We're getting so close. I'll tell you, I don't know if we're going to make it another year when our Savior comes and takes us to Himself. Look up. Don't look down. Look up. And then after telling the parable of the fig tree, in 34 he says this, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. Now you may not carouse, and you may not get drunk. But we, are, we all have the danger of getting bogged down with the cares of this life, just like the people around us. And the antidote for that is to look up. To keep looking up. There's a marvelous book in the Old Testament. We're not going to turn it. I'll just summarize it for you. That applies to this situation. It's the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. You can read it in a few minutes. Habakkuk was a prophet before the second great wave of captivity before the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. Israel was on its last legs, actually due to the southern kingdom. They were ready to be taken away, to be judged. Habakkuk begins his book with a, a prayer to God, a plea, actually. He looks around at all the wickedness in the country that he lives in, and he asks God, he says, how can you let this happen and not do anything about it? So God answers him. 
And he says, basically, I'm going to raise up this nation called the Chaldeans, who at that time were secondary to the Assyrians. They weren't the big deal. He says, I'm going to raise up this people called the Chaldeans, and they're going to come in, and they're going to sweep through the land, and I'm going to judge this country. Well, when Habakkuk heard that, he had even more questions. Because now you've got this idolatrous people coming in and wiping out what he considered at least more righteous people than them. And he said, how can you do that? You know what God says? It's, it's very similar to the book of Job. God really doesn't explain it to him. You know why? Because he doesn't have to. God doesn't have to explain anything to us. He doesn't owe me one, one thing. He tells them this, and it's a phrase that's quoted three times in the New Testament. You read over this verse, and it's only half a verse, and you see this phrase, and if you're not careful, you skip right over it. You know what the phrase is? The just shall live by faith. That's what he tells him. You know what he's telling Habakkuk at that point? He's saying, I'm not going to explain why I do things the way I do, or how I do it, or when I do them. It's not your job to know. Be thankful it isn't. You just trust me. You live by faith. Look up. Keep looking to me, recognizing that I know what I'm doing, that I love you, that I'm all-powerful, I'm all-knowing. Nothing slips through the cracks. You need to live by faith. Isn't that good? And God quotes that three times in the New Testament. That's an important phrase. Now, it's applied to salvation as well, of course, and it's used twice that way. We're saved by faith and we're justified by faith. But in the context there, he's telling Habakkuk um, the just shall live by faith. And when it's all said and done, just like Job, you know, Job goes into the, his, his the conversation with God, a broken and wretched man, and he comes out what? Worshiping God. Here's the last... A couple of verses of Habakkuk. I'll just read it. Habakkuk says this as he realizes what God is about to do to his country. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not a nice thing to think about. We don't know if he lived through it or not. We certainly know Jeremiah did. And he's called a weeping prophet. But we have this from Habakkuk. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. And it came to that. It was that bad. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and He will make me walk on my high heels. Look up. Our God is still on the throne. And Jesus is at the door. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you this morning for your word. And what a comfort it is to our souls. Lord, we think of your words. That when we see these things happening, know that he is near, even at the door. Lord Jesus, we can almost see your hand on the knob right now, turning it. And all we ask is, Lord, come on through and take us to yourself. For we ask it in your precious name. Amen.